Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Hey, boomers. I know those of you baby boomers in the crowd, put your hand up. You may not know this, but you know that's an insult now? Like you hear it on memes and my kid was saying something about, hey, boomer, to somebody the other day at the table. And one of my other sons was like, do you even know what a boomer is? And they said, well, dad, what is a boomer? And I explained to them. And so then one of them said, so are you going to be a boomer when you get older? And I said, no, I'm a Gen Xer. And they're like, what's an Xer? Don't label me, is what I said, right? That's those of us that are in Generation X. We were the don't label me generation. And actually, the word label has become to be kind of a negative thing, right? It's a, it's a stigma. It's a stereotype. It's a, it's a thing you put on someone to define them and maybe control them. I'm a this or you're a that. And so we, we, we don't like labels. <clears throat> and that's, uh, it's actually a really important question in our series when we're talking about I'm not okay the issue of label is a really important thing because I think one of the questions and actually some of the questions that have come up since we started this series is, well, you know, is mental illness like or mentally ill? Is that a label? If I have um, feelings of anxiety or sadness or depression for a day or a weekend, does that mean I'm mentally ill? Is that the label? That's the question. Um, other questions that have come up is, well, are you born with mental illness? Is that is that a part of you from the beginning? And I think at the root of that is the questions of, well, um, identity, or is that who I am? And, and I think what we want to say through this series is this isn't about labels and we don't want to sort of, this isn't about diagnosis even, although diagnosis can be helpful. But as I said to you, obviously myself, the leaders of our church, we are not um, healthcare professionals and, and our goal isn't to sort of uh, diagnose people um, and certainly not to label anyone or for you to feel like there's a label that you have to carry or wear. Um, but really just to say, look, there are seasons, times, weeks, days, years in our lives. Lives where 
many of us would be able to say, yeah, I'm not okay. Like, I'm not okay uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and how all of those things connect to each other. And whether that has signs or is connected to things like anxiety, stress, burnout, depression, um, or what we would say, well, clinically is called mental illness or mental health issues, um, or that's just because of a circumstance, uh, because of what's going on in our lives, because of physical things or whatever that we would say we're coming to this point where we, um, we, we're not doing well. Um, inside, outside, things are coming apart. We don't know how we're going to cope and we are living or we're, we're facing a sense of hopelessness in our lives. And we said last week when we started this series, and if you didn't get a chance to see that, even though we canceled church because of weather, the sermon was online, so if you haven't had a chance to see that, we said this is a broad issue that looks uh, like a lot of different things but affects millions of us <clears throat> in our country, and in the room and in our family and all of that kind of stuff. And so any one of us can come up to this point and it has, it has um, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, and relational impacts, causes, and effects. And all of this sort of goes together. And our goal in the series is, is, first of all, to make it easier to be as a community where we can say to each other and to God, I'm not okay. Because we said, even though it's a universal experience, it's so difficult to say out loud. And so we want, first and foremost, just to make it easier actually to say that. Secondly, we want to be a community that knows how to walk with each other in seasons and in times when we're not doing okay. And we want to be a community where those who would say, oh, I'm not a part of your church, or I don't know if I believe what you believe, and I don't even know if I believe in God, but they feel like we as a community can be a refuge and a help from the storms of whether it's mental health, mental illness, or just seasons in life where we're saying, I'm not okay. And where maybe the outside world or people's family or workplace or school is not easy for them to say that, that we as the church, as the community of people, would be a place where people can come to and receive help and support and direction. And so um, that's really what we're talking about and why we're doing this series. Um, it, you know, it came up at our home group last, uh, this week and someone's saying, man, six weeks is not enough. And that's true. We're, we're not going to put a bow on it. But we are hoping that God continues to shape us as a community as we, you know, this is a part of our lives and a part of the things that our people in our communities are dealing with. And we want to be a community that knows how to be uh, together in this. <clears throat> Even as we talk about the idea of labels, maybe another word that is a label is this word, the word addict. The word addict. And addiction is actually really something we need to be talking about as it relates to mental health for a few reasons. Um, some of the stats from, again, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, CAMH, uh, showing that um, there are 8 million people in our country who would um, be identified as addicted or um, to some substance or that kind of addictive behavior. Whether or not they would uh, admit that or whether or not they're getting help for that, that that's a large number of people that are just dealing with addiction. Um, the stats too show that there is a relationship, a correlation sometimes, and that those that have um, addiction or addiction are addicted to substances or addictive behavior are three times as likely to struggle with mental illness. Um, in some ways, too, we could say, so that, that maybe 
contributing to mental illness. In, in other cases, addiction is the way people deal with mental illness. <clears throat> and as said to you last week, you know, with, the, with our country legalizing pot, one of the concerns I had was at a time when, as a nation of people, young and old, we are admitting to and, and identifying high levels of anxiety and depression that at the same time, to make it easier to get drugs that can be escaped is a dangerous thing. And they said over the first three months um, in Canada, when after cannabis was legalized, that 650,000 people tried it for the first time in those three months. And, and half of those people were over 45. So this isn't just about, oh, it's kids now, they get more access to drugs. Is as many people over 45 as under 45 were actually um, trying it. And they, another stat that came out said 500,000 people say that they um, use cannabis before or during um, being at work in the workplace. And, and one of the things I have to conclude with that, just knowing some of the stats that are out there about um, toxic work environments or how difficult or purposeless some people feel in their work, that to deal with the place that feels toxic or, or purposeless, whatever, using drugs to actually get there. And so that isn't necessarily anything to do with mental illness, but just simply to say when we're we're not okay in the places we're at in school and family and work that sometimes drugs and addiction can become a part of that. And so that's one of the reasons we need to talk about it. But even as we say addict or addiction, I know for, for maybe of us just sitting here, one of two reactions comes up. Some of us would say, oh yeah, that's me, but I'm sure I'm the only one. Like I would never want anyone like, oh, I'm, I don't want to talk about this because I'm scared I'll be found out, like that people will know, and I'm sure I'm the only one, or I'm in the extreme minority. But perhaps others of us would have the response, well, that's not, oh, oh, good, I can just sit back and, you know, not really pay attention, maybe it'll be interesting, because that's not me. I'm not an addict. And can I just submit to you this saying, <clears throat> okay, there are certain things that we'd say, and that can be, you know, clinically or medically identified as addiction. And certainly things that uh, like substances, like drugs and alcohol and even pornography, they say, you know, there's a, there's a chemical uh, component of pornography addiction, not just sort of psychological and emotional, which of course is associated with alcohol and drug addiction as well. But they're saying chemically what's going on in your body when you are viewing porn, it is the same chemical effect, uh, medical professionals are saying this, um, as heroin or crack cocaine. And so the, kind, the amount of dopamine that's flooding your body, it's why the addiction is so hard to break. And so certainly we don't want to diminish or ignore the fact that there is such a thing clinically, medically as addiction and substance addiction and things like that. But can I just step back and we just sort of broaden this uh, conversation about addiction for a moment and just say there are behaviors, patterns of thought, patterns of speech, habits, Things that we do compulsively, that we do instinctively, that have become just a part of our lives and what we do all the time. Whether those things are drug things or stuff we do, or patterns of thought, or words we say. That in a sense, there are things in each of our lives that we habitually do, we habitually say, we habitually think. They are so ingrained, they are compulsive, they are almost unconscious, they are things that we go to intuitively that happen on a recurring basis that are having a dramatic impact on our thoughts, on our emotions, on our relationship with God, and our relationships with each other. And if you don't think that's true, you just need to ask the people closest to you, are there things that I do that are instinctive for me that you know, oh, this is gonna happen, this is gonna be thought, this is gonna be done, this is gonna be said. 
The truth is, friends, for those of you that would say, oh, I'm the only one, that's just not true. You're not the only one. And those of us who would say, that's not me, I would like to say humbly, that is not true either. That we are not nearly as free as we think we are. And yet, the good news is this, that when God came into the world, the name that he gave himself was Jesus, which means Savior. He saves. That we who are not as free as we really think we are, are actually people in need of saving. And that is exactly why God has come into our world. I said to you that through this series, we want to use the Psalms as our guide. And the Psalms are a section, it's a book in Scripture, and, and, and the Bible is not really a book. It's better described as a library of a collection of books. The Psalms are in the, kind of in the middle of your Bible, and it's the, large, the largest book in the Bible, and it is actually the prayer and worship book. Um, for the church. It is words that are given to the church to sing and to pray. And, and any of us that love music and you listen to music, one of the things that it does is it gives you words to say. Artists say things in ways that maybe you wouldn't be creative enough to, that I wouldn't be creative enough to write, but they are, and they give us words to sing and to say, and they help us somehow express our emotions. Well, that's what the Psalms are meant to do. They are given to us um, as a community of people to, to songs and words to say to God and words to say to him in prayer, especially if we say, well, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to talk to God about this. And particularly, we said there's a section of psalms that are given to us that allow us to actually um, um, speak and pray when we're not okay, when we're not doing well. And so that's what um, we're using. We're using Psalm 32, uh, one of those this morning, and it is a song or what's called a maskal. And as I said to you last week, a maskal, because Psalm 42 is also a maskal, um, that we use that to, um, it's a teaching. So it's a, it's a song that, maskal means like it's a song that's meant to teach and help you reflect and, um, and, and make, you know, it's a song that makes you uh, think. It's not as simple a song like, yummy, yummy. I'm here, like some of you are like, that's a song. Yeah, yeah, it is, sadly. But no, a maskal is not like that. It's a song that's meant to help you um, <clears throat> reflect and think about it. And as you think about it, it's not only giving you words to say and and sing, but it's helping you understand yourself and God more. And, And this song in particular is actually something that can help us as we are trying to figure out how do we come more, to become more free um, people? And, and the psalm is actually, we can say it's an addict's prayer, and it begins with the phrase, blessed is the one. And that word blessed, if you think about it, it just means happy. Happy, joyful, free. It's this invitation saying, don't you want to be free? Don't you want to be happy? Don't you want to be full of joy? Yes, to which all of us say, yes, yes, yes. And um, he says, blessed is the one who is forgiven, who is free, and who has no guilt. This is the invitation, the opening of Psalm 32. Now, you might say, well, how do we know? It's an, it's an addict's prayer. Um, because as he begins the psalm, he says this, when I kept silent. So we know here the psalmist, which in this psalm is actually David, is writing about a secret that he had. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I, I, I groaned all day long. And so we know it was a secret that was killing him. And any of you that have battled with addiction, or any of you that have walked with people 
that have battled an addiction, you know addictions are all about secrets. That those of us that are having compulsive, instinctive behaviors that have become repetitive in our lives, actions, thoughts, patterns of speech that have become instinctive, intuitive, we can't stop doing it, we can't stop saying it, we can't stop thinking it. You know that uh, a part of that, the root of that, what is so difficult to say, I'm, I'm not okay, is we, we keep a secret. We keep our addictions a secret. And then there's all kinds of reasons we do that. One of them, I think, is fear. We are afraid of what we will lose if we actually put up our hand and say, I'm not doing okay, I have this addiction, I think I'm addicted to this, or I'm addicted to that. What we would lose, we would lose our reputation, or other people would now see us differently, because that's what we do when we label people as addicts and we see, oh, you're like that. And so there's some fear that, how, what will people think of me? There's fear of what will I lose in terms of my credibility. No one will listen to me anymore if I have any kind of position of influence within my friends or at work or whatever in the church. As soon as I admit that, I'm going to lose all credibility. We might think, oh, I'm going to lose relationships. I'm going to lose friends. I might lose my spouse. I'm going to lose my kids. And in other words, they, they won't trust me or care about me or believe in me anymore. I could lose credibility with them. Some of us say, I'm going to lose my job. I might lose money over this if I actually admit and put up my hand and say, I'm not okay. I have this kind of addiction. So there's so much fear in us from putting up our hands. And so we keep it a secret. The other reason we keep it a secret is because of shame. We hate it. We hate it about ourselves. It's the thing we hate about ourselves. We, we don't, we, we, and, and it, because we feel like it's labeled us and defined us, we never thought we'd be in this place. We never thought, I never thought I of all people would ever do this or would ever be addicted to this or would ever have this pattern or this habit. And so there's so much shame around it because we label ourselves and what it means or what we think it means about who we are. And so again, we want to keep it in the dark. We want to hang on to it. We don't, we're afraid to come out with it. But I think maybe the other reason we keep secrets is because we're in denial. We might just say, well, that's not a problem. That thing I do, that's, that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. Or some of us would say, well, yeah, I do, but it's not a problem. Like, it's okay, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, it's fine, it's not a problem. Or others of us would say, okay, yeah, I know it's not great, but I got it under control. It's not an addiction. You know, like there's a denial about that. And so those are all the reasons why, why secrets work and why, why secrets work to keep the stuff we're dealing with silent. But on this matter of denial, I think one of the things we have to step back with and say is like, okay, this isn't just about um, people who I look like, you know, how the media would portray an addict as someone who's, you know, socially um, kind of disconnected from everyone and maybe they're losing weight or they're living on the streets and we know addictions can have those kinds of outcomes, but it's easy to look at that and go, oh, that's not me, that, that's not where I'm at. But, but let me just submit something to you, that every one of us has compulsive, um, repetitive, instinctive behaviors, patterns of thought, patterns of speech, because there is something that we are looking for underneath that, what we're, with that addiction that we actually really need. That isn't even a bad thing. It's a legitimate need, but we are thinking, oh wait, this thing, this, uh, if I do this or as I do this, it gives me the thing I need. 
And I want to just unpack that a little bit because I think the more we think about it, the more we can begin to realize, wait, this is actually how sin works in my life. And the biblical concept of sin, as I've said to you before, one of the ways to understand it is it's a diagnosis. In other words, it's explaining us to ourselves. That sin isn't simply this very thin, um, you know, kind of one-dimensional idea of doing bad things and sometimes we do bad things or some or mistakes or something like that. It is a diagnosis, an explanation of how complex the human condition is and how that leads to sin and patterns of addiction in our lives. And so the truth is we all battle addiction. And underneath the battle, underneath the things we are connected to, we are compulsively going to, the things we do, the things we think, the things we say, are actually legitimate needs that we need that we're trying to get, but we're finding them in a place that's actually killing us. For example, food, drugs, and alcohol, put those together. Those are things that many of us would say, okay, I'm addicted to in some way. And and it's easy to look at, we we say like, oh, well, I drink, but I'm I'm not an alcoholic. And, and I know one of the things that someone said to me when I was kind of reading a little bit about alcoholism is it isn't just about binge drinking or getting drunk all the time. And of course, that, that can also be uh, signs of alcoholism. But they said it's, it's actually where alcohol plays a role in a part of your life and it always plays that role. Like there's a habitual connection to it. Like I always have a drink when I come home from work. You may not have 10 drinks, but I always have one. Or whenever I'm out, I always do this or always do that. The alcohol has this thing and you never imagine doing that thing, coming home at the end of a hard work day or being out with friends or being out for dinner or being on vacation. You never have those things without alcohol. For some of us, that may mean actually that's, there's an addictive component to that or a dependence in there. But even when it comes to things like food, as it relates to these physical substances that are affecting and that we ingest or are affecting our body, that, that underneath that addiction, what are we looking for? We're looking for comfort, right? When, when, when we feel alone or when things are difficult, we're looking for escape when we're stressed. Um, we're looking for a kind of satisfaction and pleasure, comfort, you know, relief, satisfaction. Those things aren't wrong or bad in and of themselves. But as we go to them habitually, as we go to these things, they become now the things we cannot stop doing. We are enslaved to them. Pornography is the same way. As we know, oh, okay, it's not right. And even those of you that may have battled with it, you know, okay, oh, that's a sin. I shouldn't do that. But what's underneath when you're, search, when you're surfing, when you're looking at porn? There's a desire. And they, they say like, um, and, and people who have studied this and like talked to uh, addicts or been through addiction on this, it isn't just about lust. And it's very easy to say, oh, to label ourselves or label other people. Oh, that's disgusting. I can't believe you do that. There is a longing underneath that for intimacy, And actually a big part for many men is acceptance to be desired, to be loved, to have that kind of experience. And yes, you could say, well, that's kind of warped or that's not a healthy way or whatever. But underneath is this legitimate desire, again, of course, for comfort and relief, but also intimacy and and acceptance. What about gossip? You're like, what? Gossip's an addiction, right? For some of us, we are habitually addicted to talking about other people. Like whenever we get together with our friends or maybe a certain group of friends, that's how the friendship is defined with a group of girls or a group of guys or this family or these longtime friends. Whenever we're together, we talk about other people. That just seems to come up all the time. Nobody plans it. Nobody says, oh, we should do this. It's habitual. It's instinctive. It's become a defining mark of that friendship or that group of friends or those people or your family that you're a part of. And so that can actually be this compulsive thing. And the scriptures actually list gossip as a sin. It's interesting. It, it listed. 
in the scriptures along with sexual immorality and all this other stuff. And then you see, oh, gossip. And gossip can actually become addictive. Well, what's underneath gossip? Why do we do that? Why is there a compulsive nature to it? For, for some of us, we want to feel a sense of, um, like we want to feel um, controlling or good about ourselves. Some of us, if we have juicy news to offer our friends, then we're accepted and we're considered sort of part of the group. And yeah, oh, we have something to contribute. We're like the TMZ of our group or something like that, right? That there's something that gets me validated or accepted. If I'm able to gossip about other people, it makes me feel like I'm, no, they're not at least talking about me because we're talking about other people. So I'm safe. So there's a desire for safety and acceptance and control. None of those things in and of themselves are bad, but it can turn into a habitual um, a thing that actually uses us up and, and, you know, like is sour in our mouth even, even if we become aware of it even now, you know, there's something not good about it. What about praise and approval? That can be an addiction. Some of us can live our lives, our whole ways, our patterns of everything we do is to get praise from people. And we may not call it praise or whatever, but maybe approval is a better way to think about it, where we want people to tell us we're okay. We want validation. We want acceptance. Some of us, everything we do in a conversation and angle it and the way we meet people when we meet new people or however we interact with people is to let them know who we are or to manage our face, to come off looking good or we fish for compliments or everything we do, the stuff we do, whether in ministry or in work or at school or whatever, is in order to receive the praise of other people. And yeah, in our own lives, it looks, and it looks ugly. Sometimes we can see it in other people or we see it in ourselves. But underneath it, what are we looking for? To be loved, to be validated, to, to be, for someone to say, you're good, we like you, we accept you. Those things aren't bad things, but when we become addicted to the praise and the approval of other people, it is relentless and, and it's never enough and it begins to use us up and affect our relationships. What about rage? Rage is a habit for some of us. Like that is our go-to. That's what we do when we're stressed. Uh, we go into anger mode. That's what we do when someone offends us or we don't like what uh, is happening in our, in our friendships or our school or whatever. When we feel out of control, we, we get angry. Many of us get angry because rage is a safer emotion, not for other people, but for us <laughs> to express than hurt. What we really feel is hurt or fear. But we power up, we muscle up, we get angry, we get loud, we get uh, aggressive, we get angry with our face, we use our actions or even our bodies sometimes to control. Why? Because we're, we're afraid. We're afraid of rejection, we're afraid of, of failing, we're afraid of what will happen, we're afraid of being out of control. And none of those things are bad in themselves, but rage, as we try to use it, it becomes so destructive in our lives and in our relationships. And many of us, you know, the people around us can see and predict, oh yeah, that's so, I know exactly what he's going to do. Oh, I know exactly what she's going to do. Oh, the, the flip, the switch is flipped. That friend, I know, oh, rage mode, rage monster. I know this is coming. It's habitual. And other people sometimes can even see it better in our lives than we can. And what about criticism? The scriptures actually call this slander. Some of us have a habit of being critical. Like most of what comes out of our mouth, whether it's about the government or about our sports team or about the person driving on the road or about our, our spouse or about our friend or about our teacher or about our pastor or about our church or about our family is criticism. We are constantly negative. It's this, it's that. It could be little things, big things, whatever it is, but we have a habit, a pattern of speech that is constantly critical. Well, what's underneath that? Well, maybe justice, maybe we're frustrated, legitimately frustrated at how things are and we feel like we're being treated unfairly or there's an injustice or someone's hurt us 
and it hasn't been fixed, and those are legitimate needs. But the way we try to get that done and get that fulfilled is we criticize them because it's a power move. It's like, well, they hurt me, so I'm going to criticize them, and, I, and, and nothing's changing, and no one's done anything about it, and they don't even know about it, or they're not acknowledging about it, so I'm going to critique. For some of us, it's, it's control. It's how we feel um, control of a situation where maybe we feel out of control. For some of us, it's how we feel better about ourselves. Self-acceptance, um, self-identity, um, and, and, and fighting insecurity in our lives. And those things are legitimate needs, but criticism becomes a, an, uh, a destructive and addictive pattern of speech and thought in our lives. You see, friends, we all, this is just a short list, we all battle addiction. And addictions are based on lies They promise us something. We have a legitimate need and this substance or this habit or this thing promises us relief, promises us control, promises us validation, promises us acceptance, promises us that we will feel better about ourselves. But the more we use it, the more we do it, the opposite, it delivers less unless it doesn't deliver on the promise. And this is the irrationality, as one person said, about sin and addiction. It promises something, and it never delivers. And in fact, it delivers less and less. And in the cases of some of these addictions, uh, chemical addictions, it offers less and less over time. And so you need more and more to get the same high that you first had from the beginning. And so this is what happens. It promises something. It delivers less and less. And in the end, what it does is it uses us up, and it becomes a weight that we carry around with us. And so for many of us, we are actually battling this, but we are in denial, or we are in fear, or we are in shame. And so we are reluctant to admit, and so we keep a secret about it. What is the way forward? Well, Psalm 32, the prayer, right? For us addicts, if if we all battle it in some way, he says this, then I acknowledged my sin and did not cover up. I was hiding right? I didn't want to know. When I kept silent, it was crushing me. And in fact, he says, God, your hand was heavy on me. It's a mercy, friends, when God lets us feel the weight and the heaviness of our addiction. You know why? Because it begins to um, break apart the denial that this isn't a problem, or we've got it under control, or this is okay. And it begins to get us to the point where we're saying, I can't carry this anymore. This thing is killing me. It's too heavy for me. It's using me up. And the psalmist says, finally, you know what? I acknowledged my sin, and I did not cover up anymore. I came out of the dark. And I put my hand up, and I said, I'm not okay. And what happens, right? So here's what, because what's beautiful about this psalm is, he's teaching He's saying, okay, this was what was going on. He's praying. He's showing us his words as well. He said, what happened when I acknowledged my sin to you, God? You forgave me. And the word forgive here, the Hebrew word, actually is the, the psalmist saying, you carried me and carried it away. You carried away my burden. He says, God, you forgave me. And what you did was you lifted the weight off me. And this is the beautiful thing about who God is. Instead of these things that we go to and we give ourselves to in in habit of behavior and thought and speech. And in the end, all they do is use us up and destroy our relationships and make them this heavy thing that we drag around with us. David says, when I confessed it to you, God, you carried me. 
(laughs) Instead of me carrying around this weight of addiction that I was so afraid to admit, when I admitted it, when I acknowledged my sin, when I said, it is a sin, it is a problem, I'm not in control of it, it's getting the better of me, you lifted it off me. You forgave me. But not just that. Then he says, let all the faithful... Pray. Who's the faithful? All the addicts, right? All of us who would say, yep, we're all in the same boat, but we know who God is. Let all the faithful then pray to. He says, while you may be found. It doesn't mean God's going to disappear. There's just a sense of urgency. He says, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. In other words, don't wait another day. Why are you carrying this weight? Why are you living in the dark with this addiction? Another day when you could be free, when God could lift it off you. He says, let all the faithful pray to you, I'll be found. And then he says, God, you become, look, if you read the text, I've just summarized it for you here. He says, God becomes his hiding place. Isn't that so cool? That before he was hiding in the dark with his secret, when he came out with it, he says, God, you hide me. In other words, we, we hide in the dark with secrets because we think somehow darkness will protect us. But all the darkness does is let the secret keep growing, right? Any of you that have battled an addiction or battling it now, you know the more you keep silent about it, the more you're in the dark about it, the less you ask for help about it, the the harder it is to carry, the, the stronger the fire burns, the more it has control over you. And he says, when I came out with it, you hid me. In other words, you protected me. You gave me true covering. You covered up my shame and my sin. And he says, you surround me with songs of deliverance. We sing that, right? You surround me with the song. It's from this Psalm, Psalm 32. Because you know what we're surrounded by? You know what we hear when we're battling addiction in the dark? We hear voices of accusation from ourselves. We label ourselves. We hate ourselves. We tell lies to ourselves. We hear lies from the enemy accusing us. Maybe we hear words from other people, you know, condemning us or criticizing us. He says, but when I come out with what I'm dealing with and I give it to you, you surround me with songs of deliverance. The words that I hear now are words of rescue and words of hope and words of healing and words of deliverance. He says, when we come out with it, God protects us and hides us. And then even further, now this is the most beautiful part of this psalm. He's teaching, he's telling, he's showing us his prayer, but then he actually says, but this is what God said back to me. The psalm switches and now God is speaking. And this is the beautiful thing that happens in prayer. It isn't just stuff we say. Once as we are talking, we begin to listen and hear, well, what is God saying back to me? And this is what God says to him. Now that you have come out with this, and you've uncovered this, and you're not hiding it anymore, and trying to fix it yourself, or trying to live in denial that it's not even a problem, or living with fear and shame. Now that that's gone, and I've lifted it off you, and now I'm protecting you, he says, now I will instruct, teach, and counsel you with my loving eye on you. And these words, instruct, teach, and counsel, they're all slightly different, but they all work together to say, I'm going to guide you. I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to help you make better decisions of behavior and thought and speech. I'm leading you into something new with my loving eye on you. He's reminding us, God directs us. Not only saying, here, I'm going to fix you up and like, oh, you're a mess, like you're a project or, you know, God isn't like Anyone else in our lives, you know, sometimes when we're dealing with addictions or whatever, the people around us are tired of us or they just want to fix us. And, you know, maybe they're trying to help in their best way. But, but he says, no, God looks at us with his loving eyes and says, come on, let me lead you into 
something new. And this is the beauty of the way God works with us. And say, okay, when we come out with what's going on, He forgives us. He lifts the weight. He lifts the burden. Um, we, we get free. And, and we get um, uh, covering from Him. Not the covering of the dark that we hide in. And we get instruction. And we get guidance. And we get direction in a whole new way of living. And so this is what we are invited into. And so what does that mean for us? Like, how does that work as a, um, as a community? Like, Because remember, this was a psalm um, given to a group of people, not just one person's writings, but these were the, the, the prayer and worship manual given to a community and a congregation. And so for those of us, we say, yeah, you know what? We're all battling addiction in some way, shape, or form. How do we as a community, when we're running into this, when we're experiencing this, how does this help us move forward together? Well, it's a few things. First of all, it says, hey, well, we put our hands up, put a hand up and say, I'm not okay. It's the beginning point of saying, I'm not going to live with this in the dark anymore. I'm coming out of the dark and I'm saying, I'm not keeping secrets. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm saying, I'm not okay. I think I have a problem with this. And it isn't about being labeled or whatever. It's just saying, I know I'm not okay. I have a habitual pattern of behavior, of thought, of speech. It's turning to God for forgiveness and saying, and actually maybe he's the one who's letting you feel the weight of this until you finally turn to him. Why? Not so that he can condemn you, so that he can lift the burden off you. Right? We condemn ourselves. The enemy condemns us. Other people condemn us, but God does not. The scriptures say that in Jesus, there is therefore no condemnation any longer. And so we turn to God for forgiveness and we ask him to lift the burden and forgive our sin. And then we are able to receive grace. We receive grace from God who is gracious and loving and protects us and comes around us and hides us, protects us properly. And we receive grace from each other as the community of people as we do this together. And we receive help. And so this is what this means as we do this together. Now, when we talk about turning to God for forgiveness... Um, someone asked the question once, why does it seem easier to confess our sins to God than to actually confess them to each other? Now, that may mean because, you know, we, we know God's going to be gracious and whatever. But sometimes maybe that means we actually haven't confessed it at all. We've just kind of set it into the dark and we sort of, oh, God, you know anyway. Why does it seem like, I know in my own life, the power comes when I'm actually able to say to another person and to confess my sin to another person. There's power in that when I really acknowledge this is real. This is where it hits home. That's when I actually feel that I've confessed it to God when I've actually said it to someone else. Someone else, who, in a sense, who represents God to me. Someone in my faith community. Someone close to me. Someone who loves me. That when I'm actually saying it out loud to a flesh and blood person, rather than to a God I can't see, I say it to a flesh and blood person who represents God to me. And that's when that power. So turning to God for forgiveness isn't just a silent, quiet prayer, because actually that can still stay in the dark, even when we're doing that. It's when we come out with it in a safe way, in an appropriate way, not to 150 people, but to one or two other people who are committed to us and are close to us and say, I'm not okay. And we turn to them and we ask them, can you pray that God will forgive me for this? The other reason we do that is because that allows us to receive grace. Like, how do you know how God would treat you if you come out with your sin? How do you know he'd treat you with grace and kindness and love and understanding? Because the flesh and blood people who represent God to you treat you with grace and forgiveness and kindness 
and understanding. So we have this beautiful opportunity to do this for each other where we demonstrate the grace and the forgiveness and the acceptance and the patience and love of God to each other when we confess to each other. And that's why this each other component, this um, horizontal dimension of, of forgiveness and confession is so important, not just the vertical one between us and God, but between us with God's people in, 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 in our community. This is why our home groups, we want, because you can't do that with 150 people on a Sunday morning, but this is why we encourage you to get into groups, to get into relationships with people who are committed to each other and where you represent God to each other, where you know together you're battling this stuff together. No one's a label or no one's by themselves. We're all in it together. We're all battling this in some way. We all have addictive patterns, compulsive patterns, um, instinctive patterns of behavior and thought and speech. And so in our groups together, we were able to confess to each other and receive grace and forgiveness and also receive help. This is a key component that's help. How do we help each other as a community? Um, there's this idea of accountability that maybe some of you are familiar with. It, that in community, we not only receive grace when we tell someone I'm not okay and acceptance, but they say, okay, I want to help you. Um, and accountability, often we think about, okay, uh, I have this addictive behavior. You no, know, I eat too much or I'm always drinking this or I'm going on the internet at night looking at porn. And I have these, I'm gossiping too much. Can you help me not do that anymore? Um, ask me if I've done it. You know, I want to stop. And, and there can be some help, you know, with that. That can, that can be useful on, on some level. But to be honest, um, just having people who are holding you accountable to not do something is not going to really be ultimately effective in the long term. You know why? Because when you want to do something that you know is habitual and not good, you're not picking up the phone you know, at, at one o'clock in the morning when you're about to look at porn and calling your friends saying, you know, I know some people have that self-control, but most of us are like, no, I don't want anyone to know. That's why it's in the dark. That's why it's late at night. So I'm not going to call my friend. Or when I'm stressed and I've come home and I want to have a few drinks or I want to eat or whatever, in that moment, I'm feeling that thing. I'm not going to call that person and say, help me. You know, you might, and that can be sometimes effective, but for a lot of us, and in my own experience and working with other people, it's not as effective. But we do need accountability. And so here's what we need. We need accountability to not just not do things, but to do other things. We need people to hold us accountable to being in relationships. Because any of us that have battled addiction know, you know what you do when you're fighting that addiction, especially when you're losing, you withdraw, you hide. You hide from people. You withdraw from community. We need accountability that says, hey, where were you on Sunday? I didn't see you. Are you okay? Hey, we're at home group tonight. Where are you? Are you? Get over here. Hey, where are you? You're home tonight. I'm coming over. I'm not going to let you be alone. We need accountability for that kind of thing. To say, when was the last time you were out with a really good friend? When was the last time you had a really good laugh with someone close to you? When was the last time you had a good meal with someone who's safe and encourages you? You know, that, that we need accountability to do those things. They act, we often think, oh, what's a, a night out with a friend going to do with this addiction I'm battling? No, we need relationship. We need people to hold us accountable to, are you praying? Because that's another thing we do. We hide from God when we're battling addiction. So we don't show up to church. We don't show up to home group. We don't pray. And so we need people to say, are you praying? Not just about this, but, but about other things. Oh, you can't pray? I'm, like, call me. I'm going to pray with you. I'm coming over. Let's pray together. We, we hold each other accountable to being in relationship with God, even in the midst of our addiction, knowing God's the one who lifts the burden from us. We hold each other accountable to exercise. Physically doing something with our body. Exercise is a big, it's one of those keystone habits that actually affects how we feel and how we think and how we live. And so we need people who are saying, come on, let's go for a walk. Let's go for a run. Let's do this. Let's play basketball this weekend. Are you, are you connecting in sports? Are you, are you doing stuff for exercise? Are you whatever it is? Because that's a part of it. 
And all these things actually have to work together in accountability. I remember um, when I used to work in business, I used to travel, um, I noticed a pattern happening. So I'd be traveling and we'd get to the hotel or whatever, you're in meetings all day, and then you go out for dinner, you're out late at night, and then I come home back to my hotel room, and I'm on my own, 12, one in the morning, start flipping around on the TV and start watching stuff I shouldn't be watching and even looking for that stuff and realizing, no, this is destructive. Now, as, as one of the accountability groups I was in saying, hey, you gotta tell your wife every time you look at something inappropriate. And so oh, I would do that. And that was difficult to do, right? Um, and, and any of you that have struggled with porn or whatever I've said, like you gotta tell your spouse if you're married. And that's really hard. It's hard to see the tears of your spouse or they look at you because you know, it's, it's a wound against them in some way. Um, but you know, Jen was very gracious and we would talk it through, but that wasn't enough. We started actually talking about, okay, it isn't just about me not doing something. What other things do I need to do to help me with that? And so what am I doing on the plane over? Am I reading? Am I praying? Am I mentally preparing myself to saying, I'm going into battle. How can I feed on God? How can I get close to God? And remember, be in relationship with him. How can I stimulate my mind to think about things that I want to think about that actually help my soul? When I get there to the hotel, I have a plan right away. Exercise right away. You know, get myself into a discipline, a good habit. Um, Decide already, I'm actually not going to turn on the TV at all. And so it isn't, oh, I can watch these things and other things. I'm just going to stay away from it. It doesn't actually help me either. I made, I made sure actually I was connecting with Jen more often when I was traveling, that I would take time to call her and hear her voice and we would connect and me relationally connecting with her again, hearing her voice. And as she says she loves me and I say I love her, all that relationship actually helps. It was the whole thing I needed accountability for, not just the thing I didn't want to do. And so that's just a little example from my own life, but that's how this works and that's how this is meant to work and it's what we're meant to do for each other. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a little prayer to end with that will actually help you and hopefully help you remember what this actually looks like and how this works. And here's the prayer. I'm going to act it out for you in a moment, okay? It's hand up. Hand up says, I'm not okay and I need help and I don't want to be in the dark anymore. It's palms open. God, help me. Forgive me. It's arms wide. Receive grace. Receive grace and know that you can show grace to each other, arms wide open for each other, and hand out. says, come on, let me help you. Let me help you. I'm not just going to give you grace. I want to help you. And so here's what I want to do for a moment. I want us to do this prayer together, okay? To say, and, and so I want us all to stand. And if you're watching this on video, I want you to stand. I want you to just, just do this. If you're listening in your car, don't stand up, okay? <laughs> we're going to do this together. And every one of us, because we're all in the same boat, right? And so here's how this prayer goes. Hand up. I'm not okay. And I don't want to live in the dark anymore. Palms open. God, forgive me. Lift this burden off me. Carry this off me. You are the one who carries me. Arms wide. God, I receive your embrace. I receive the embrace of other people who are telling me I'm loved, I'm accepted just as I am. I want to be an embrace for other people who need to know they are loved and they are graciously accepted just as they are. And then hand out. I don't just want to show grace. I want to help you. Come, let me help you. Hand up. Palms open. Arms wide. Hand out. Now, I don't know where you may happen to be this morning in that prayer. You may be one of us who are at one stage or there. Maybe you're in the hand up phase where I need to be honest about this. Maybe you're in the palms up 
phase saying like, I need to confess to God and to a close friend or family member who's going to help me and forgive me. Maybe you're saying, I need to remember that God's arms are open wide to me and show me grace and acceptance just as I am. Or maybe you're someone who needs to be that for other people. Maybe you've been critical and judgmental of other people who you see their compulsive behaviors, patterns of thought, patterns of speech, and now you realize, wait, I'm in the same boat too. Or maybe you're someone says, you know what, I need to give practical help. I know that person's struggling and I accept them, but I need to help them. I want to hold them accountable, not just to not do things, but to do things that will actually bring life to them again. You know, for any of us that have struggled with addiction, you know, we live in the past and we live in the future. We live in the past as we think about what we did and we regret it and we're angry and we look in the past. We look at the future and we think, okay, I'm going to change tomorrow or next week or next year. Where will this be? Do you know what the most important day in your life always is? And certainly when it comes to addiction, it's today. It's today. You cannot change the past and the future is not guaranteed. But today is the most important day you have. And so I want to encourage you today, this day, the day you're hearing this, that you would take a step, maybe to put your hand up, maybe to open your palms, maybe to have your arms wide, or maybe to have a hand out. I want to bless you with God's Spirit as you have the faith to go and take a step like that.